0: Let's go to our scripture reading for this morning. We'll look at Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard, and going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, You go into the vineyard too. And whatever is right, I will give you. So they went, going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour. He did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you send your idol all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. So we are continuing our our series in generosity, and um, most likely we will complete the series the week before Easter. Um, And so far we've been thinking about how generosity has a tendency to sound like it's solely about money, uh, that it's a money issue through and through, when it's really not. Uh, it's ultimately a heart issue. And in a way, it's, it's one of the more empirical heart issues because uh, it reveals to us what our true treasures are in life. And last week we also looked at how our generosity is intimately connected with our anxiety as well. And how a life of generosity proactively pushes against anxiety. But generosity does have things to do with money. It's intricately linked with money. Uh, And today's passage helped us sort of address that topic of money head on. Um, And it gives us three very helpful perspectives when it comes to money. And here they are. One, it's God's gift. Two, it's a means to an end. And three, it begins when it really ends. Okay, I'll explain what that means. It's God's gift. It's a means to an end. And it begins when it really ends. All right? Here we go. First point, it's God's gift. Jesus is giving us here a parable about a master of a house who's hiring laborers for his vineyard. And it begins this way, verse one. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And there it is, our first point. Okay, the first point hangs on these two words. His vineyard. Actually, it's one word. His. Okay. Uh, that's the first point of the parable. It's an incredibly po- commonsensical one, but it's also incredibly discomforting. The the point translated into our modern day in our context is this. It's not your money. It's his. The Greek word for master here actually is synonymous with land owner. It's, it's the uh, concept of someone who owns and possesses things. Whereas a word for laborers is by definition a laborer who works for money without taking ownership of anything. And everything he does eventually own depends on his relationship, his continuing relationship with his master who gives him work, gives him his wages. And as laborers on someone else's land, they don't get to do whatever they want but only what is assigned to them. Only what is given to them by their master, the owner of the land. Okay, that's the setup of this parable. With a master who owns everything, okay, and laborers who are stewards of everything given to them. Okay, translate this into non-parabolic terms. God owns it all. It's all His. It's His money. And that's probably making a lot of us uncomfortable already, Right? Because when it comes to our possessions and our money, the the very deeply rooted fundamental assumption we have about them is, they're ours, it's mine. But you have to understand that the very premise of this parable, its very basic assumption is, they're not. They're God's. And that's actually the theme of the entire Bible. Like in the children's catechism that we just recited, what is God? God is the creator of everyone and everything. Everything. And that makes him the master. That makes him the owner. Okay. And parents, you do know when you teach them this catechism, that's what you're teaching them. Okay. But how well do you receive this teaching uh, for yourself? Okay, some of you might be asking, and I think rightfully, what about all the hard work I've I've put into my accomplishments? Right? All the studying for the exams, all the all-nighters, extra hours I put into uh, uh, my studies, you know, and, and also the, the, the extra hours I put into my work so I'll be where I'm at in my position. What about all of that? What about all the work I did? Okay, let's, let us reason together, okay? In Job 33, 4 it says, The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. The breath of the Almighty is what keeps me alive. Don't you kind of need that in order to work? Life, breath, okay. that's from God. What else do you need? Health. You're healthy, aren't you? Okay. At least most of you are. You know, you're, you're, we're certainly bound to get questions like this in, in a season like this. Um, how can a good God permit something like? COVID-19, like this pandemic, okay? And, and there's a good answer to that, but here's another way to look at it, just for the sake of time. The, the human coronavirus has been around since the 1960s, um, and it's been identified in various forms since the early 2000s, and then in 2003, and then again in 2004, and then again in 2005. So one could make the point that it's a wonder that it hasn't been a problematic pandemic until now. And even so, even then, even now, some people are doing a better job of containing it than others, the human responsibility does play a role here too. But see, if God had, if he had prevented millions of other deaths due to pandemics, famines, droughts, wars, we simply wouldn't know about them because they didn't happen. We only amplify the negative and not the blessings that are right before our eyes. And the broader point I'm making with that is this. The broader point is, every single day of your life, every moment of your life, is a gift. It's not something we're entitled to. It's not, some, it's not something that God owes us. It's a gift. Do you understand that? It's a gift given to us for us to steward. And parents, that's the first key word, gift. Gift. Think about God's gifts, your favorite gifts. Every second you're alive, you're receiving from God something that you're not entitled to. Something he doesn't owe you, but is freely giving to you. And it can't be that you have earned that gift, the gift of life through your own good works, because it's God's gift of life that enables you to work. And that's the principle summarized in verse 2. After agreeing with the laborers for denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. He sent them into his vineyard. Right here, the gift is not merely life and breath. It's also the ability to labor and a setting to labor in. A space in which we can be productive and fruitful. And at the end of the day, signifying the end of our lives, we will be rewarded. King David you know, by all measurements, a very successful man during his time, his culture. He says this in 1 Chronicles 29, verse 16. O Lord, our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a house. Okay? All that we provided you for building your house, for your holy name, comes from your hand and is all your own. All that we're offering you, it's yours anyway. It came from you and we're gifting it back to you. Uh, here's another quote, not from the Bible, but it, it's worth reiterating, re, re, worth saying, even though it's a very difficult saying. That's why I'm quoting someone else, because it's a difficult saying. I don't, want it come, I don't want it to come from me. I want it to come from someone else. Here's the quote. If you're a steward, and none of it is really yours, and God calls you to be radically generous, but you're not, that is not just stinginess, that is Robbery. That is not just miserliness, it is thievery. Not just a lack of compassion, but a lack of integrity. That's a hard saying. It's not just stinginess, it's robbery. You're robbing God. Did you know that the Bible actually says that in in Malachi 3.8? It says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with tithing, in the Old Testament, God's people were obligated to give away 10% of their income. And the church, being not just a New Testament people, but also an Old Testament people as well, were biblical people because we're people of the same covenant, the covenant God made with Abraham fulfilled in Christ, we, we also must tithe. And consider this, too. If anything, if anything, the standard should be higher for God's people in the New Testament. Because we're not just getting the shadowy images of the past, of the sacrifices in the temple, the the division between God and His people in the Holy of Holies through the curtain. Instead, we have the ultimate once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb of God, through whom the barrier, the curtain, between God and His people, His people and the Holy of Holies, has been torn forever. So you tell me, should... The standard be higher or lower for the saints in the New Testament? For those of us who are no longer living in the shadows, but in the light of Christ. If anything, the standard should be higher. Now, you might say, okay, 10%, I get it. But that's a lot. 10% is a lot. That, that takes a heavy toll on my budget and, and how I spend my money. But you see, it's, it's heavy. It's only heavy, it's only burdensome if you're operating from this very basic false assumption that this is all yours. Think about this. If someone were to come to you and say, hey, I'm going to give you $100,000. Okay. All I ask, all I ask is that you invest 10000 of that. Is that right? Is, is 10,000, 10% of 100000 right? Into the church and its missions and its charities. But the rest of the 90000 you can do as you wish, would you take that deal? Or would you say, dang, 10000 That's a lot. I don't think I can take that deal. Nobody would say that, right? None of you say that because none of you would think that. Not if you understand that none of this is yours to begin with and anything you get is by grace. So this is why this is important. This is important not just because God needs your money. He doesn't need our money. But because you need to understand, and I need to understand, the radically undeserved generosity of God. We need to keep that perspective, and tithing helps us keep that perspective. And this perspective is what gives us the constant reminder of God's generosity towards us. Although He doesn't owe us anything, He has given us everything we have. And that is the most basic Christian understanding of money. It's not mine. It's not yours. It's God's. Here's the second point. Money, it's a means to an end. Another way to say it, money is not about money. Uh, Here, verse 3. The master goes out about the third hour, that's 9 a.m. during their time, and he tells them, those people who are standing idle with no word, he says to them, you go. You go into the vineyard too. And he calls them, and then notice what he does next. He qualifies them. You go, and then, that's the call. And then into the vineyard too, right? He qualifies them. You're qualified to do this. I'm, I'm giving you the qualifications to do this. I'm calling you and I'm qualifying you to do this, okay? He repeats this then again at noon and again at three, right? Now, uh, the typical workday in the vineyard during this time was 6 a.m., 6 p.m. So that 3 p.m. higher is only going to work three hours that day. Okay better than nothing right but here's what's strange look at verse six verse six and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing and he said to them, Why do you stand your idol all day they said to him, because no one has hired us he said to them, you go into the vineyard too okay. the eleventh hour that's five pm you're going to you're going to work barely barely work for an hour you I mean think about it you're going to, Get ready, get stationed, and uh, have somebody show you how to get in the hang of things, right? The trick to it and all that. You're only going to work efficiently for about 30 minutes. Okay. But here's what's stranger. It's evening, and the day's over, and the master calls everyone over to pay their wages, and and those who came at the 11th hour who worked only one hour, barely an hour, they get one denarius. The wages promised to those who worked since the first hour. And so, those people who've been working since 6 a.m., they come and they see this and they go, wow, we're probably going to get way more than that. We better get more than that. What happens next? Verse 10. Each of them also received a denarius. And so, what do the first hour workers do? I think they're doing what we would do. They grumbled against the master. They grumbled against the master, saying, verse 12, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. You have made them equal to us. And notice this, Jesus is speaking to the Jews, and time and time again he's been challenging them. Do you not know that the promise is not just for you, but it also for the Gentiles? And here, there's a hidden commentary here saying to the Jewish people, you're not the only people of God. I am making you equal as the Gentiles. I'm calling all of them, all the nations, to be blessed through Abraham and his offspring. The direct reply that the Master gives, it's, it's actually astounding. The Master says one word, and here's a, here's a second key word for our children today. Friend. Friend. Notice this, the first workers were complaining because they bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. What are they thinking? Or how are they thinking? Their attitude at work and the thought process behind their work is entirely transactional. It's transactional. But what about the master who caused this stranger he's hired to work in his vineyard, to labor on, in his vineyard with his, with his tools, with his, with his resources, and to give him his wages? For him, ultimately, it's relational friend. The master wasn't trying to earn more money for himself, score a big return on his investment. He's winning friends. And he's not even cryptic about it. Listen to what he says in verse 15. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity? Generosity is not not the best business model out there. It's not the way to get a good return. And that's because this landowner is not after prosperity. He's after generosity. Why? Here's something Proverbs 19.6 says, Many seek the favor of a generous man, and everyone is a friend to a man who gives gifts. What do you do when you want to invest in a friendship? You start getting generous, right? With your time, with your energy, with your emotions, with your thoughts, and with your money. You invest in a friendship by putting the interest of the other person in front of your own, and you start making sacrifices, that generosity. So whose interests are really being championed in this parable? It's not the master's. He's losing money. It's the laborer's interest. Those who are standing idle, no work, no purpose, no vineyard, no wages. And the master is carrying all the financial burden by paying everybody a denarius, even though they haven't worked the entire day, even for those who have barely worked an hour. The laborer's interests are placed entirely above and beyond the master's own interest. Why? He's not after their labor. He's after them. He's after them. He's after friends. And it's not a transactional friendship either. There are no strings attached. He tells the first worker in verse 14, take what belongs to you and go. You're free to go. If nothing's keeping you here other than money, other than this transaction, take your money and go. In other words, if I'm just a means to an end, money is just a means to an end for you, we can have nothing to do with each other. That's not my business model. For me, money is just a means to an end, not an end in itself. Now, translate that into Christianity. Translate it in non-parabolic terms. If you were to say to God, God, I'll serve you if you do this for me. God, I'll serve you if you keep me away from suffering. I'll I'll serve you if I pass this test. I'll serve you if you make me well. I'll serve you if I get this job. Don't you see how that is just as transactional as a first-hour workers and not relational? And that transactional religion, God will have nothing to do with. He will simply say, take what is yours and go. Look, see, for God, he's not investing, inviting you into his kingdom because you would just, you would just somehow make an incredible addition to his kingdom. God the Father is not saying, okay, I got, I got the Son, I got the Holy Spirit, but I gotta have you. That is not what he's saying. I hope none of you think that that's what he's saying. Here's what he is saying. You're standing idle in the world. You're aimless. You're without purpose. But I'm going to call you still into my kingdom where you'll labor for eternally meaningful cause, where you'll receive a reward, and most of all, you will be my friend forever. And that's a gift no money can buy. It's something that you'll never trade all the money in the world for. Would you like to receive that? Would you like to receive that? Now, this point, I think even if you're a secular person, even an entirely secular humanist, humanistic type of person, uh, I, I think this point is worth making. Let, let's, say, let's say you want to make a lot of money and enough money to buy a million-dollar house. Okay? And you do. Let's say you accomplish that. It's an incredibly brand-new million-dollar house. Now, if that house were to burn down one day, But you and your family are spared. They're okay. Would any of you say, I wish it was the other way around? None of you would say that, right? I hope not. But here's that's interesting. Why is that? Because in the secular worldview, aren't they both temporary? Aren't they both material things? Don't they both decay? Don't they both die? Somehow you, you know the intrinsic value of one over the other. Add on to this this, this additional fact: I think every one of us, at our, on our deathbed, I think we can all foresee that none of us will say, "I wish I had spent more time making more money." But I think most of us, if not all of us, will say, "I will miss my friends." I will miss my family. I hope I can see them again somehow. And that proves what? You are not made for money. You are not made for money. Money is just a means to an end. You are made for relationships and relationships that don't end. And I will submit to you, there is no materialistic explanation for that, for why we are that way. But there is a biblical spiritual explanation for that. You were made in the image of a triune God who was and is and will be eternally relational. He's made you for the same purpose. Your soul was made by such a beautiful spirit, one that will always and forever elevate relationships over material possessions. So money, it's a means to an end, not an end in itself. Do you have this perspective? One, it's God's. Two, it's a means to an end. And that eternal perspective will help us hone in on what really matters most in life and also trigger our generosity in life. Understanding that the thing that we treasure the most, it's not here, it's not bought with money, it's on the other side of eternity. And that's what, what the Master wants the laborers to see. I think Tim Keller put it really well when he said, we are like beached whales. A beached whale is still alive but not for long and not having a great time. And it's when you get the whale back in the water that is when all its capacity will realize, all its purpose realized and it'll be able to do what it was always meant to do. You and I were made for the kingdom of God. We're just beached whales on this side of heaven. And while we're living on the sand, we're not to hoard the sand, but to long for the seas. Give away the sand. Give away the sand. Give away your life. Put the interests of others before your own. Live generously. You can do this only if you have this eternal perspective and understand what it is that you're truly made of. And if you think about it, this kind of generosity that puts the interests of others before your own isn't this the kind of generosity that's needed to literally, literally save the world right now? Now, uh, There was an interesting article written by one of my uh, professors in seminary. Um, I, I forget the title, but it was something like how, how the you-do-you you culture is making the world vulnerable to the coronavirus. And I think the title is kind of self-explanatory. How are you going to tell a whole generation of people who've been hearing all their lives, hey, you do you, and overnight expect that they will somehow change their perspective on this, deny their own self-interest, and stay home? But that's what the fate of the world is hinging on, unless science, you know, we're praying that science would develop something. But until that point, we're counting on what? People's generosity. Generosity. But how are you going to do that when, when all they've been hearing all their lives is you do you, whatever floats your boat, your body, your choice? How are we going to confine them to something, to a life of generosity, when their worldview is not one of generosity? That's, that's asking for a total shift in their worldview. That's, that's asking for a complete renewal of their minds. That's asking, I, I would go as far as to say, that's asking for them to be born again. But here's the thing, Uh, no amount of social awareness, no amount of Facebook shares and likes on articles or guilt tripping will change a stingy heart into a generous one. Our hearts don't change that quickly. That only happens when your perspective is changed by seeing the world, not through a transactional lens, but through a relational lens. And for that to happen, you need to know what you're made of. You're made of the imago Dei, the image of God who is eternally relational. And this leads us to the last point. And here's a final key word. And really the final point. It's Jesus. The key word is Jesus. It's the person telling the parable. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the key to the end of our attachment to money and beginning of our life of generosity. Okay. He is what puts an end to our attachment to money and really begins our life of generosity. Immediately after this parable, ending in verse 16, you know what Jesus does? He he takes his disciples and he begins to head towards Jerusalem. And he tells them why. Very clearly, to be crucified on their behalf. To pay the penalty for their sins. He's going to take the cross so he can carry his people's infinite burden upon himself. The burden of sin. The burden of having sinned against an infinite God. The burden of having robbed God. He's going to lay down his most prized possession for them, his life. Why? Why? To befriend them forever. To befriend them forever. And when you realize this, when you realize this, money can't can't rule over your life. Money can't take control over your life. Money won't seem like it will be able to satisfy you forever when you're satisfied in the friendship offered in Jesus Christ. That attachment detaches you from your love of money and it will free you then to the true use of money. And that's what I mean. It begins when it really ends. Your use of money, the most meaningful use of your money, your generous living, begins when your attachment to money ends. When your affection for money dies. That's when money lives. That's when you live the life of generosity. You'll simply see money as a means of displaying the radical generosity that you have received from Christ. And your life of earning and spending will naturally, organically, be infused into this master's purpose. So I want to say this to you, church. The the mission of the church to the world hasn't changed because of COVID-19. We need to spread the generosity of Christ. Because it's only when people experience the radical generosity of Christ that is when they will abandon the you-do-you attitude in life and mentality and start putting the interests of others before their own. What they need is still the gospel. What they still need is the generosity of Christ. Do you see it? Do you see how the gospel is still the answer for the world? Not even in a time like this, but especially in a time like this. So let's share this good news with others, with our neighbors, and let's live it out and let them see our love for our neighbors as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for freeing us from the attachment to the temporary, to the things that are finite, to the things that will not ultimately satisfy so we can be attached to and united with your Son. So we would enjoy forever this perfect relationship, perfect fellowship with you, Father. Help us to hold fast to this truth during this season so we can be freely generous to those around us. Help us to be generous with not only our money, but also with our time, with our energy and our our emotions, to be there to care for one another, to look into one another, check in on one another, to pray for one another to even meet the practical needs of one another, to go to groceries for our neighbors and not just for ourselves. You have given us your life. You have laid it all down for us while we were your enemies. Lord, let that change us. If it hasn't changed us enough, let it change us more radically and help us to display this generosity, this very generosity that can literally save the world to our neighbors, to our community, to our city pray all these things in Jesus' name.